Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we will be in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, which is page 495 on the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Blue Bible, or your own Bible, not necessarily a Blue Bible, they're located in the back of the seats in front of you. Feel free to take one of those as a gift from Northridge if you need one. That's again Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Thus says God's word. Will you once again pray with me? Father, we thank you for just the wisdom that is revealed to us in your word. We thank you that um, the truth is not withheld from us. It is not laid out for us in, in uh, some mysterious way that we cannot understand it, Lord, but you make it clear to us. And yet, Lord, knowing this, we know that we require your help to understand it and to receive from it the, the message that you have for us. And so, God, we pray that this morning you would interact with this congregation, do that great work, open our minds and our, our hearts to understand the truth of what you are saying um, in this portion of Mark. Help us to understand it and more than that, to apply it, Lord. God, to take the sum of our lives, everything that we are, everything that we have, and place them before you. And realize that in doing so, God, we are not impoverished, but we are made rich. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. We ask you also, Lord, that you would assist me. We ask you that you would make my words clear. That any remaining leaven that's in me, God, would not leaven this lump. But God, you would purify me, make me holy as I stand before this people and share your word. And so, Lord, I thank you for... You're working both in the congregation and in myself. And I give you this moment. I, I, I just surrender it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I want to say real quickly, we have, over the past several weeks, we've had some people that are relatively new to Northridge. And um, uh, and I've been asked, seriously, I was like, uh, uh, people, uh, one person in particular asked me, so do you? do you ever preach around here? <laughs> and the answer is yes, I do. From time to time, they let me do that. And so um, t today I'm very glad to be back. But I always like to say, all kidding aside, that I am very, very, very grateful. Uh, in, the, in Mark 12, we've had the opportunity to hear from Jared. We've heard from Pastor David. We've heard from Gabriel. And all of them did a fantastic job in, in kind of exploring the content of this passage of Scripture. And I'm very grateful for uh, what they lent to that. And, um, and so I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be 
jumping right in here. This, this, as we have pointed out over and over and over and over through the journey through Mark 12, is so crucial. It's not crucial just, this is important, but not just because it precedes the crucifixion of Christ, but it, but it doesn't just precede the beginning of something, which would be the redemption of mankind through the death of Christ. It actually uh, is, is the end of something as well. It is, it is the absolute uh, gavel-dropping judgment on the Jewish system, the old covenant that God is, is, as Hebrews will later teach us, is making something obsolete by providing something better. And all of this speaks to that reality. So throughout chapter 12 of Mark, Jesus, after his entry into Jerusalem, how did he enter Jerusalem? You, you know the story. We celebrated every Palm Sunday. He came in as a king, just as Zechariah prophesied that he would. He comes in as the long prophesied uh, king. And immediately after that, what happens? He has one confrontation after another with the Jewish religious and political authorities. He's been questioned and tested by uh, at least four groups of people, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all of these representing um, Jewish religious political authorities, and each one of them has tried to test him and, and expose him through questioning and, and, and uh, analogy and, and hypotheticals and things like that. And he, uh, uh, he, we also saw how he fielded a question from a scribe about the greatest commandment. And in this chapter, that's the only positive exchange that Jesus had with any of these people. Jesus even told him, as Pastor Dave taught us, he said that he, uh, Jesus told him, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't in the kingdom, but he wasn't far. Um, last week, uh, Gabriel showed us how he was posed, uh, or he, instead of being questioned by the scribes, Jesus himself posed a question about the scribes that blew their minds. He said, um, you know, referring back to the Psalms, he said, who is, you know, who's the son of David? He's the Messiah. And he said, well, if he's the Messiah, if he's the son of David, how does, why does David call him Lord? And so what he was trying to say is this man himself who would descend from the line of David was in fact David's Lord, his Adonai, his God. And so this is all, this is all revolutionary, culture-shifting stuff that, that is happening. The, uh, the, the, there's a transformation that's taking place. And because it's so far off the accepted Jewish way, the tradition, it is causing incredible consternation. It's causing the, these people to plot, and though they've been plotting, as we've seen in Mark, for months now, his death, they are trying to, to get some real traction behind their idea of ridding themselves of the Jesus problem. So now Jesus has the mic again. He's asked this question of the, of the scribes, and he has this mic, and, he, and we see in this concluding passage, this concluding section of Mark 12, that, see, that we see that he now looks to everyone else, all of the, the people that are hearing, the, the, that are eavesdropping on these conversations he's having with Pharisees and Herodians and, and, um, and Sadducees and scribes, and he issues a warning about the scribes. He even uses this word. He tells the people to beware. When I see a sign that says on, on the sign, on the side of a gate or something, beware of dog, I don't want to find out if I can take the dog. I take their word for it. 
I just assume that I don't want to tangle with that dog. And Jesus is using the same word. He says, beware. And this passage parallels, I'm going to give you some homework, and I want you to take me seriously on this. This passage, all, in fact, all of Mark 12, parallels Matthew 23. And I want you to, sometime this week, I want you to go home, and I want you to slowly and carefully read Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, Jesus delivers several woes. They start like this. Woe to you, scratch. Now, don't do it now. I hear you flipping in your Bibles. Don't read it now. Wait till you get home. I got something to say to you. Um, the, uh, um, the, 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 so, he says over and over in, in Matthew 23, Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. This word woe, we don't use it a lot, but basically it means you're in trouble. It's a curse. It's a condemnation. And Jesus says it over and over and over in Matthew 23. And so, it, because he says it as the scribes and the Pharisees, he's kind of making these groups interchangeable. Let me see if I can unpack that for you. The scribes, as both David and Gabriel have pointed out, represented the academics. They represented the theologians. They were people who chose a profession of literary studies. They were studying primarily the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and, and the rabbinical teachings, the, the traditions of the elders Jesus referred to a lot that had been handed down. Scribes were rigorously trained. You couldn't just declare yourself a scribe. You had to go through a lengthy, rigorous process to become uh, recognized as a scribe. And they could emerge either from the Sadducees, which we told you was the more kind of liberal, progressive party of the Jews, um, or the Pharisees, which were the conservative and more legalistic Jews. Um, and when Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, therefore, it's reasonable to believe, because he makes a distinction of Pharisees, that he's talking mostly about the scribes that, that rose from among the Sadducees. The most significant thing about both Mark 12, where we're at today, and Matthew 23, which you're going to read later, is that Jesus is the one who entered the city as the judge, or as the king. But he entered as the king, but what's he acting like now? He's acting like the judge. He was the king, now he's the judge, which is the function of a king, it's a kingly role. And God, or as God, he had, he had come to, uh, to see how his people had kept or not kept the covenant. And this passage has implications, as I said earlier, for the end of the Old Covenant and the ushering in of the New Covenant. And we are going to see this clearly as we advance to, Matthew, to, to Mark 13 and also Matthew 24. You can read Matthew 24 in your homework if you want to do that as well. In Mark 12, Jesus concludes by issuing a warning against the scribes, whether they originate from the Pharisees or the Sadducees, doesn't matter. And what is this warning in particular? Because it applies to both parties under the heading of the scribes. This is what he says, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplace. They have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now there's a lot in there. But I want you to know that first of all, that this, this version, the, the ESV says they like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings. In the, in the, there's, there's other translations that I think get a little bit closer. It says they love these things. They crave these things. They desire these things. They want these things. They don't just, you know, give or take it. They don't just like it. 
They want it. Now, I want you to notice that there's three accusations, primarily, that Jesus makes here. Number one, Jesus says that the scribes like to walk around in long robes. Now, you may have seen, has anybody here, raise your hand, has anybody here ever traveled to the Holy Land, gone to the Temple Mount, okay, Judy, a couple of other people, uh, Jim, and and so you'll see, uh, when you go to the Temple Mount, you'll see men praying, and what do they do? They have their prayer shawls, and they're praying before the wailing wall, and and this sort of thing. So we see that. That's kind of familiar to us. But what you you may not know, um, though we, we're familiar with the shawls draped around their head and shoulders, um, the scribes took this to a whole new level. They wanted everybody to know that they were big shots. And so they would wear these these shawls and these robes and with tassels on them. And they, and they would literally drag the ground like a train behind them. And so that everyone, when you saw them, you'd say, hey, you know, if, if you know, Sherman is a, is a scribe and, and, um, and, you know, Gabriel's just a regular schlub Jew that prays, we'd say, you know, Gabriel can pray, but man, Sherman can pray. You know how I know? Because his robe is so long. And it sounds crazy, but that was really the idea. And, and so... This was to let you know, this, this raiment was to let you know that these people were important. They were dignified. They were spiritual. Their garments were a type of uniform that separated them from the common unwashed masses that gathered around them in the temple. They wanted, they lusted to stand out. They wanted to be noticed for the purpose of commanding the respect of others. Now, you look at a passage like this, the challenge for a pastor is to say, okay, great, we understand the historical context. How on earth does this apply to 20, you know, the, the 21st century in America, in, in the Christian church? How does that apply? Well, let me tell you something, it applies. See, we have different ways to impress people with our spirituality. Some, for some people, it may be their expressions of something mystical. I have a dream. I have a word. I have a tongue. I have an interpretation. I have, uh, I, you know, I have a dance. I have, you know, some sort of, some sort of, you know, illustration of my spiritual, you know, superiority. And you know what that is at its root? It's what in the first century they called Gnosticism. It's I have a secret knowledge that you don't have. And the reason I have it is because I'm more spiritual than you. That's what it is. But so we can say that, move on, and let Reformed people like us right off the hook, right? Not so fast. We may not try to impress people with our elaborate spiritual attire, but have we ever been guilty of this? Have we ever tried to maintain the spirit of the scribe by using complex or even embellished theological terms or drone on and on about spiritual concepts, not at the heart of it to instruct somebody or to exhort the church, but to send out a signal, hey buddy, I am somebody. You know how you know it? Because I use big words that I had to go to seminary to learn and still don't really know what they mean. But you can't know that part. We are somebody. We're advanced in wisdom. And you know what that is? Know what that is? Gnosticism. 
I have a knowledge that you can't obtain because I have an education. It's not a stretch to think like that. So whether you are trying to like impress people with your signs, wonders, dreams, and visions, or your elaborate theological language, the question that has to come to you is, is where is the element of humility in your Christianity? Jesus was God. Do we as a church affirm that statement? He was resplendent in eternal glory. And yet, Philippians 2 tells us that he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. Doing without. The Son of Man has not a place to lay his head, he said. He suffered in order to learn obedience, as Hebrews tells us. And do we think that we, through the esteem of others, through our spiritual gifts or our spiritual knowledge, should live as popes? See, the truest test of your wisdom is how accessible you can make your wisdom to ignorant and unlearned people by patiently explaining mysteries in unambiguous language and much fewer syllables. If you can do that, if you can take the deep concepts of God and make them accessible to children, you are truly wise. Amen? You know what the true test of your spirituality is? Not your dream, not your vision, but according to Paul himself, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, your love. That is the true test of your spirituality. All right, let's move on. I'm on a rampage here. Second, Christ says that the scribes like greetings in the marketplace. See, they not only wanted visual recognition by their long and gaudy robes and shawls, they wanted verbal recognition as well. They loved it when people on the street recognized them and called out, Father, teacher, rabbi, reverend, pastor, doctor. They loved it. They not only loved hearing these greetings in their pride, they only, not only perked up when they heard somebody say it, but they were pretty happy that everyone around them was hearing it too. Jesus said this though in the complimentary passage of Matthew 23. Speaking to his disciples, he said, but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And Call no man your father on earth. Anybody from a Roman Catholic background here? That scripture probably doesn't get a lot of airtime in the Roman Catholic Church. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, let me tell you something that you may have never considered. The preferred New Testament title that we're given to call one another, regardless of our education, regardless of our ecclesiastical or clerical position, you know what it is? It's Adelphoi. You know what that means? Brothers and sisters. That's the preferred language that the New Testament gives us. Not bishop, not, you know, pope, not you know, pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever. The, the, those are roles. Those are ministry roles. But to, to, to one another, we address each other 
and, and regard each other as brother and sister. But see, we're a family of siblings who share in the common benefits of our one Father, His grace and His truth. It's not available in a greater degree to guys like me and Gabriel and David. It's available to His whole body poured out as soon as we open this Word. Lastly, Jesus finds the scribes guilty of devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayers. It's assumed... Let me tell you, let me get your opinion again. I'll take another poll. Is this a safe assumption that people who are teaching God's people the Scriptures and guiding them into truth should do so for the benefit of their audience and not for the acquisition of personal gain or fortune? Is that a safe assumption to make? I'm glad you all agree with that. So I guess there goes my luxury jet. When Jesus says that they devour widows' houses... He means that they have prayed on the most vulnerable people in their midst, demanding their meager possessions to secure for themselves a comfortable, cushy lifestyle. Their calling included relieving the the suffering of the weak and hurting, but instead Jesus is making an an accusation against them that they actually exploited them. Throughout the Bible, we're commanded to champion the cause of the poor and the defenseless. James 1.27 is a great example of that. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What a tragedy. When the church, the place of refuge that God has established for the weak and needy becomes the epicenter of their exploitation and their torment. And this problem did not end in first century Jerusalem. It remains a problem. I make jokes about it, but Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis manipulate people into funding their luxury jets. And they do it sickeningly by twisting the promises of God's Word and withholding from the people the whole counsel of God's Word. And it's easy, again, for us to condemn these extreme examples of this kind of abuse without adequately, adequately examining ourselves. In a church like this, it's easy to get amens by mentioning Kenneth Copeland. But what kind of priorities do we, if we were the only church on the face of the earth, what kind of priorities does Northridge Life Church have regarding the poor, the truly needy, the addicted, the abused, the neglected in our city? Do we feel any pressure at all for the hurting? Or do we think that, you know, those kind of problems will work themselves out? They're the pastor's problem, or worse yet, they're the government's problem. They'll take care of it. How prone are we, if we're honest, to care more about our homes, more about our cars as status symbols, instead of looking at our wealth and our possessions as tools that have been graciously granted to us to advance the kingdom of God, to relieve suffering, and to be agents for not only the message of God's love, but for the active demonstration of it. I would argue that most churches in Lubbock 
do great with the message. What we desperately need is a church to rise up who is majoring, uh, not ever forsaking the message. Everything springs from the message. The message is first, it's primary. But as we get the message right, may God raise up churches that get the active demonstration of that message right. So to cover up their worldliness, their unholiness, the predatory behavior, the scribes put on a show, dripping not with pure religion, but with fleshly religiosity. Jesus said that for a pretense, they make long prayers. They knew, that, they knew all the steps to the sanctimonious dance. But their hearts were unaffected. And because their hearts were unaffected, the people that they were caring for suffered. For all these examples of self-absorption, the, the scribes, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, stood guilty before their judge. They failed in every aspect of their calling. All the facts about the Bible that they had studied, that they had memorized, that they had taught, were meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. As Paul said to Timothy uh, uh, about others, he said that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. And this was not a minor issue with Jesus. Jesus ends that paragraph by saying, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because most of the time, if, if I ask you, what's the worst sin? No, all sins are equal. And it is true that sins will, um, you know, every sin is worthy of, of damnation. It's worthy of condemnation by God. But Jesus speaks here and in other places of a greater condemnation. In other places, he speaks of the greater sin. And I don't have time to unpack that this morning, but it gives me pause to think about the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes we're casual about preaching that doesn't conform to the truth of the whole gospel, that isn't rock-solid, bolted, uh, or, or not bolted into, but flowing from this Word. And we'll call it, well, that's a different perspective. That's, they're just being innovative. They're just being creative. But Christ says that that to do such things endangers the soul of the messenger. James concurred in his epistle. He warns people that they should be very wary of seeking ecclesiastical offices for themselves because he says, for we know that we who teach will be judged with stricter or with greater strictness. Communicating God's message to others should be done soberly. Whether to a congregation like what I'm doing this morning or when you do it with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your co-workers. Paul raises the bar infinitely high when he says this, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from the apostolic witness, let him be accursed. Let me just illustrate what that means for you. Lesser syllables, like I said earlier. To say let them be accursed, it means let them be condemned. Let them be cast into hell. He took the purity of the gospel so seriously that he said that. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of by all these outward forms. They were denying Jesus. And we will see in the coming weeks, in chapter 13, that Christ's words and their condemnation were not an idle threat at all. That he, he made a threat... Uh, he made a, a, then he made a judgment, 
and then that judgment was carried out in human history. But why did Jesus, what was the purpose behind Jesus' warning about the scribes? Why did he use the word beware? Because he wanted people to see that faith does not consist in all this pomp and pride. He didn't want them to be sold something that was less than his best by these spiritual phonies. He didn't want his sheep being, you know, short-sold the goodness of the gospel. Christianity isn't rooted in some hierarchical system of of spiritual peasants and holier-than-thous. Christianity is built on promises that are only made, these promises are only made to the unworthy, the desperate, the naked, submissive, the willing, those whom the Holy Spirit has enabled to see the true nature of their innate spiritual poverty will cry out for the acceptance, the reconciliation, and the healing that only His grace provides. Instead of rigorous religious accomplishment, Christ offers us not a ladder to climb, but a gift to receive. It consists of pardon and forgiveness, of transformation and safety and peace in the midst of suffering. This better covenant is offered to all who will believe and repent, sacrificing everything for what he offers absolutely for free. Now, we're almost done, but in the providence of God, this teaching about the scribes is immediately followed by an illustration that could only have been orchestrated by a sovereign God. In verse 41 we read, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, this would have taken place in a section of the temple called the Court of the Women, not because it was exclusively reserved for women, but it was because worshiping females were permitted there where, while they were restricted from other sections of the temple. And it was in the Court of the Women where 13 receptacles were stationed for Jews to deposit both their legally required gifts under Jewish law, like the temple tax and their tithes, and free will gifts like donations for the temple ministry and alms for the poor. And it was here that the wealthiest Jews would often make a great spectacle of their giving, literally having people loudly announce that they were about to make a contribution. Keegan Cook is about to give $7 billion into the offering. I hope he's actually going to do that this morning. That would really change... We would have to rewrite our budget, I think, if we did that. So, But they would do that. They'd make these loud, boastful announcements. And, and they would often even accompany these things, I kid you not, with trumpet blasts. Can you imagine the absurdity of that? Can you imagine just... Doo, 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 doo! Then the announcement comes, and they come hauling in their gift. And Jesus addressed this directly at the beginning of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 2, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. You see, he didn't use this word in Mark, but he just called those people doing that hypocrites, actors, phonies. They do it in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. But truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, that praise they seek so desperately, that's all they're getting. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It must have been the case on this day in the holiday spirit before the Passover that the wealthy took every opportunity to put their lavish gifts on display. Many commoners must have been stunned watching this, this show going on before them to see far greater sums than would pass through their hands in an entire year, maybe an entire lifetime, be so readily contributed to the ministry of the temple. And this makes the contrast of what Jesus observed and what Jesus commented on so much more stunning. Because after the noise and after the fireworks of all the fat cats plopping down their exorbitant gifts, a little gray-headed, hunched-over widow perhaps clothed in rags, hobbles up to the donation receptacle. She may have felt utterly ashamed by her haggard appearance, the the robes draped around her shoulders. She may have felt too much in the spotlight after all the attention bestowed on the wealthy givers that preceded her. But regardless of her intimidating circumstances, she opens her fist and with absolutely no pageantry, drops down two small uh, small copper coins into the offering. And these two small coins that she deposited are called a penny in most English translations. And that's just to illustrate what an insignificant amount it has. If I told you I had a financial gift to you and dropped dropped a bright new penny in your hand, I I assume that you would not be too impressed. See, the coins were called the quadrants. And the quadrants amounted to, it was a tiny little coin amounting to one thirty-second of a denarius. Now, you might remember from other words in the scriptures, a, a denarius was a day's wages for the common laborer. He made 365 denari- denarius a year. You know, that's the idea. And so, if it's one thirty-second of a denarius, this means that her gift amounted to 15 minutes of the average daily wage, of what it would take to earn the average daily wage. And it says, He called His disciples to Him, Jesus, and He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Now, Jesus is the creator of the universe. I'm pretty sure he knows how to do math. Jesus is saying to us, though, to make it clear that she didn't give such a small amount comparatively to the other people because she was stingy. Her offering constituted every single bit of her worldly wealth. Think for a moment how much money you make in 15 minutes. Just think about it. If you're an hourly employee, divide it by four. That's what that's what we're talking about. You know, think about 15 minutes. And think about if you were facing this week the bills you have, the food you need, the heat you have to keep on in your house, and that's all you have. Think about that for a minute. 
It was everything. Her devotion to God made her push all of her chips to the middle of the table and go all in on her faith. She knew three things. She did this because of three things. She knew that God, regardless of her needs, was worthy of her sacrifice. Second of all, she looked to him alone and not her own ability to provide for her and trusted in the promise that he would. And lastly, she knew, most importantly, that if she had him, she had everything that she would ever need. By contrast, the scribes approach God not as those who worship him in spirit and in truth, but negotiating with him, wondering, what's in it for me? How can I be recognized? How will people see this? The common traits of both the scribes and the big givers in the temple was performance. It was pride. Everything they did was loud. It was flashy. They did it for attention. But this dear woman did what she did humbly. She did it quietly. She did it without fanfare. She did nothing to be seen, and I would guess that she probably preferred not to be seen. She did what she did as unto the Lord, not for the approval of men, but for the approval of God alone. And we learn here that Jesus not only knows mathematics, but he uses different mathematics than we do. He didn't calculate the value of the two parties' gifts, the wealthy and the widow. He didn't calculate the value of their gifts by their financial value. Instead, he looked at the heart. He didn't look to see what the hands gave. He looked to see what the heart held back. He looked to see where the motivation to give came from. Were they motivated by pride or were they motivated by love and worship? And we see this story, when we read this, we see this story as exceptional. And we say to ourselves, surely Jesus isn't expecting us before we leave church this morning to empty out all our purses, to empty out our wallets, our bank accounts. Surely he's not, is he? And if I can give you just the tiniest little rebuke, if that's all you're worried about, you are missing the entire point of this story. See, because Jesus isn't elevating you emptying your wallet or your purse. Jesus is saying far more than that. Jesus actually wants far more, infinitely more than what's in your wallet. He wants infinitely more than what's in your purse. He wants your affection. He wants your integrity. He wants your service. He wants your time. He wants your wisdom. And he wants your money as well. Now, he may let you hold some of your money to steward it. He may let you have some of your time to use it. But be sober in the fact that for every desire that you have, for every minute that you're granted, and for every dollar you carry, a great day of accounting is rapidly approaching on the horizon. 
The question in that day will never be, God will never ask you this, did you divest yourself of everything and live like a hermit? But rather, did you show your love for me with all the good gifts that I gave you, even your very breath? Now we have no idea who else gave what that day in the temple, but the Holy Spirit has forever memorialized Jesus' loving observation and his commendation of this dear widow for our benefit and for our instruction. The showy scribes were promised what? Greater condemnation. But she has, through the inspiration of Scripture, she has the eternal approval of Christ. Do you want greater condemnation or the eternal approval of Christ? If so, ask yourselves these questions. Is your faith genuine? Not because you walked in here thinking about it. What is the Holy Spirit pointing to, highlighting, spotlighting right now in your soul? Is your faith genuine or are there elements of it or even the totality of it that is a mere production? Are you only good at lip service and play acting? Do you say things out there that you would never say in here? Do you have struggles and things out there that you would never admit to in here? Or does your religion and worship spring from an increasingly transformed life and heart that is fully devoted to God and to His glory? Let me ask you this other question. How do you draw a line of demarcation? Because we all do this to one way or other, and we always have to review it constantly. How do you draw a line of demarcation between what belongs to you and what belongs to God? And this is not a mere philosophical question. It represents the difference, the wide chasm, the Grand Canyon, between genuine biblical Christianity and a cheap imitation or perversion of it. One represented by a faithful widow and one represented by scribes who received a greater condemnation. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we, we look to you, God. God, we know even from when Pastor David preached the message on loving you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength that there is no one here who has placed everything into the offering. Our thoughts, our desires, our time, our money, our breath. And so Lord, we long to empty ourselves, to pour out everything we are like the woman who poured her ointment on your feet. We long to do that, Lord. And God, we boldly ask you by your Holy Spirit to expose our long robes. Expose our love of greetings and seats, at feasts, banquets, synagogues. Expose all that, God. God, expose the place of our greed and our envy. For we would rather devour a widow's house than relieve her suffering, God. It's going to look different for us than the scribe, different from 
one person to another, but God, show us. And Lord, this is the greatest miracle. Enable us more and more to take our lives, everything we have, everything we have to live on, and lay it before you. God, I've prayed this prayer probably a thousand times, but I pray that even among this congregation, you would call some to abandon everything, go to a foreign mission field, to give up careers and, and, and uh, God, move their skills and their talents that they've used to, to lay up wealth, God, just use it to, to reach this world for Jesus. God, others, it'll look much less dramatic. I pray that you would just shake them from their pride and the people that they know that they need to speak to about your gospel. Lord, help them to lay down their life, everything that they have, just to speak up and say your truth, God. God, convict us of the places where we have put kingdom things on a secondary level because we have been pursuing our own things, our own leisure, our own joy, our own satisfaction, and so we've denied ourselves the satisfaction, the joy, and the approval of God. So Lord, let this be a day of not just repentance, but a day of transformation as well. Do a work in us that we cannot do ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion helpers to come and, uh, to the table. It may, to some of you, especially those of you who are not Christians, it may seem odd that I would preach a message with such a, a passion and saying, give it all, lay it all down. What is the basis for us saying that? Is it some weird monastic thing where we want you to, you know, shave your heads and sell flowers for us at the airport? No. It's this. That we can freely give everything that we have because Christ has given everything for us. And the Bible says that if we know that God has given him for us, how will we not also understand that He will freely give us all things. He is the pearl of great price. You sell everything that you have to have Him, and you have everything. You have all the wealth you will ever need if you have Him. And I, my prayer is this morning that the Holy Spirit makes that real to some of you. As we enter into communion, I want to remind you that this is such a vivid picture that God has given the church of what... He did for us in the Holy Son of God, fully man, fully, fully divine, coming and being broken for us, shedding his precious lifeblood so that you and I could be redeemed from the curse of this world. And so when we celebrate this, we are in, engaged in a covenant renewal uh, where we celebrate this fact that we have been given righteousness we never had to earn, never could have earned. Uh, because Christ took on sin that he never should have had to carry. And we give him praise for it. And so from the book, uh, so I, I want to invite you to come and, and, um, and receive the elements, take them back to your chairs, and then we will take them together in just a moment. And as you come, prepare your hearts with worship, with meditation on the things we've talked about today. Mark records the institution of 
this, this, the Lord's Supper in his gospel this way. He says, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. God, we thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that as you call us to lay our lives, all of our lives before you, that we will do so in the reminder that you held nothing back. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that we can give the fullness of ourselves because we have received the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I actually want to read you as a benediction the um, passage that, that Pastor David preached on just a couple of weeks ago. The Bible says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.